Hey everyone, I'm Tyler. And I'm Alicia. And we are Medium Dives, where we want to talk about things, but we're too lazy to do a deep dive. So here we are. what we have like a total of 34 listeners wait actually um yes but also i think that the stats count if they're like when more than listen? 10 seconds well yeah. yes that too <laughs> so 34 listens are recorded across platforms including we'll us it. we'll take it but yeah i mean decent decent track that's pretty amazing thank you know. for listening thank you guys they only listen for 10 seconds though and that's <laughs> that's all they can take we are inseparable it's very possible yeah. i don't know i'm still waiting for the entire country of ireland to start listening to us though. <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretty sure we're close we're right there okay okay so let me get started yes my topic for this week is about the third man factor i'm very excited it is very, very interesting. And it got more interesting the more I looked into it. So Wonderful. I will try to do this relatively short, as short as I possibly But that's can. not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. <laughs> I, I tried to cut it down as much as I could, but there's just too much here. So we'll see. We're just going to wing it. I might end up having to cut a lot out to make it reasonable, but we'll see. Wonderful. Most of this information comes from the book, The Third Man Factor by John Geiger. So... Let me start by saying, what is the third man factor? Or some people call it the third man syndrome. And it's a phenomenon where people in extreme survival scenarios feel an additional presence that is not actually there. Interesting. Some people even report seeing this presence. And it is usually comforting, soothing. And sometimes this other person actually helps the person survive the situation that they're in, like telling them what to do. How cool. Yeah. And so it can range from like just kind of feeling like you're not alone to like actually thinking that there is someone else with you. So most reports of the third man come from explorers and adventurers, like the daredevils, if you will. But there's also a lot from just people going through traumatic shit. So I'm going to start out by telling you a few of like the more famous stories of the third man factor. And then I'm going to get into the theories. Oh, I can't wait. So possibly the most famous story is a story about Sir Ernest Shackleton. And this is where the phenomenon got its name. And actually, in this story, his group, they thought they saw a fourth man. But plot twist. It, <laughs> the poet T.S. Eliot wrote about this in the poem The Wasteland that he wrote in 1922. And he was inspired by this story with Sir Ernest Shackleton. And he took some creative liberty and made it into the third man, which is where we get the third man factor. Amazing. So the part that is like about the third man is, who is the third who walks always beside you when I count there are only you and I together? But when I look ahead up the white road, there's always another one walking beside you. Gliding wrapped in a brown mantle hooded, I do not know whether a man or a woman, but who is that on the other side of you? Beautiful. So that's what made it popular in calling it the third man. Okay. Sir Ernest Shackleton was a British explorer, and he encountered the third man during his Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition of 1914 through 16. He was trying to get to the South Pole. His ship ended up getting trapped by ice, and that ship was carried on ice for about 10 months. After 10 months, the crew abandoned the ship, and they had to make their way across the ice for another five months dragging smaller boats with them. I would jump in the water and die instantly. Instantly. (laughs) It's funny you say that because, okay, first of all, same. I feel like I don't have that much will to live to live through something like that. (laughs) But who knows? But yeah, I I concur. And actually, my next bullet point is that supposedly Shackleton had to force some of his men to live because they wanted to commit suicide. Oh, interesting. Wow. So then They spent three nights in these smaller boats. There were freezing temperatures. Some were suffering from dysentery. They were dealing with rain and snow. Shackleton didn't think that they would all survive a fourth night, but then they finally saw land, part of the Antarctic Peninsula. So they landed, and Shackleton knew that there was no chance that they'd be rescued. I guess it was, like, really remote. It's the South Pole. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So he took five men with him in one of the small boats so that they could get to the closest whaling station which was in South Georgia. They spent 17 days on the sea in this small boat. There were horrible, horrible conditions. 
and ended with a hurricane that they dealt with for nine hours before they were able to land. So they landed. They're in a state of extreme hunger and thirst, super fucking cold, but they had to get to the opposite side of the island because, like, the hurricane made them land early. And they decided to go on foot because, given that they just spent nine hours in a hurricane on the water, they decided, let's not do that again. So they chilled for a couple days. They recovered from the boat trip, eating and drinking water. And then Shackleton and two others, Frank Worsley and Tom Crean, left the others, and they started the trek across the mountain ranges and glaciers on the island. And this trek took 36 hours. So they made it to the whaling station, and actually all of the crew members were saved once the rescuers were dispatched. So, like, literally all of them survived, which is shocking. So during that trek across land is when they supposedly felt this presence of the fourth man. So Shackleton, quote, like he wrote in, like, diaries and stuff. I know that during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that we were four, not three. And actually, all three men independently had this experience of a fourth man. So, like, they didn't talk about it. But three weeks later, Worsley said without any prompting, he was like, boss, I had a curious feeling on the march that there was another person with us. And then Crean later independently said he felt the same thing. So... Honestly, that story, not my favorite of the third man stories, but it's like where the name got came from. So Gotcha. Okay. This one is fucking amazing. This one is a story about Ron DeFrancesco, and he worked at the World Trade Center on the 84th floor of the South Tower. This is like a third man situation in the 9-11 incident. Oh, gosh. The planes hit the North Tower first, and most people in the South Building started to evacuate. And right as he left to evacuate, his area of the building was hit. When he tried to go down the stairs, the smoke was so thick that he was unable to see a few feet in front of him. And he ended up stopping at a landing in the middle of the impact zone. He thinks it was either the 79th or the 80th floor. And there was a collapsed wall preventing him and the other people that were there from descending further. And he kind of just like sat down. But then he heard a male voice telling him to get up. But it wasn't coming from anyone in the stairwell. And... Then the voice addressed him by name and offered encouragement. He said that it was kind of like, you can do this. He felt a physical presence as well. It felt like someone lifted him up and was guiding him. So he said, I was led to the stairs. I don't think something grabbed my hand, but I was definitely led. He continued going down the stairs, saw a light through all the collapsed debris, but then encountered flames. But the presence continued to urge him along. So he said, there's still danger. So it led me to the stairwell. Let me to break through. Let me to run through the fire. There was obviously somebody encouraging me. That's not where you go. You don't go toward the fire. Yeah. When he reached floor 76, that was where it was clear. It was like below the impact zone, below the fire. That's when he stopped feeling the presence. He said, I think at that point it let me go. He encountered firefighters who told him to keep going down. And he ended up being the last person out of the South Tower and only one of four people above the 81st floor to escape. So, like, basically, he was in a situation that, like, barely anyone survived. And who would voluntarily walk through fire? Um, And he's like, no, this person led me through it, you know? So that's crazy. Absolutely. Okay. This one is one of my favorite stories as well. This one I thought was really cool. So this is a story of James Savigny. And most of this information I got from the book that I mentioned earlier by John Geiger, but some of these quotes and whatnot are from a CNN article titled Near Death, Aided by a Ghostly Companion by John Blake. Okay, so James was a 28-year-old student from New Hampshire, and he and his friend Rick set out to climb a mountain in the Canadian Rockies in 1983. And they ended up getting knocked down by an avalanche. Savigny gained consciousness about an hour later, and he was severely injured. So his back was broken in two places, one arm was fractured, his other arm had severed nerves from a broken scapula, cracked ribs, <sighs> torn ligaments on both knees, internal bleeding, he had a broken nose, broken teeth, and open wounds. If you tell me this man lives, I won't believe you. He not does live. <laughs> Stop like, it right now. So he saw his friend, and it was clear to him that his friend was dead. And so he lay down beside him. He was quoted saying, I figured that if I fell asleep, it would be the easiest way to go. Uh. He lay there for about 20 minutes, eventually starting feeling warm due to the shock and hypothermia, and he began to doze off. This is – this must be a quote from the book. (laughs) Or – yeah. Or it could be from the article. One of the two. (laughs) 
<laughs> you pick. He realized that there was no vast gulf separating life and death, but rather a fine line. And at that moment, Savigny thought it would be easier to cross that line than to struggle on. Uh. But then he felt a sudden sensation. Quote, it was something I couldn't see, but it was a physical presence. And it communicated mentally to him, you can't give up. You have to try. He said, it told me what to do. The only decision I had made at that point of time was to lay down next to Rick and to fall asleep and to accept death. That's the only decision I made. All decisions made sub- subsequent to that were made by the presence. I was merely taking mm. instructions. I understood what it wanted me to do. It wanted me to live. When he first heard the voice, he said that it reminded him of a woman. It was warm and nurturing, and it gave practical advice to him, such as, you have to get your jacket on. You have to get water. And it even told him to arrange the blood dripping from his body, especially from his nose because it was broken, into the shape of arrows like pointing to the way he was walking in case rescuers came up on his trail. Oh my gosh. He said, I didn't question it. I didn't think about it. I did exactly what the voice said. So he made it back to his camp. And when he laid down, he thought for sure he was going to die then. He thought he heard some other voices, called out for help. And then he felt the presence leave. He said, it was gone. There was nothing there. There was no presence. There was no one telling me to do anything. And I could tell that it had left. What I thought then was I'm hallucinating. The presence knows I'm dead and it has just given up on me. In fact, the presence had left because it knew I was safe. Because what actually ended up happening is his calls for help were to actual people who were there. And like people came and rescued him and he survived. Amazing. I accidentally deleted that bullet point. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's kind of like a key part of the story. (laughs) And he says, if it wasn't for the third man, I would be dead. There's no way that I would have the strength to get up and walk across that valley and do the things I did to survive. Wild. Those are the stories. I have some theories. Go. Well, not me. These are all... <laughs> <laughs> nope, they're all yours. We claim them. These are all from um, John Geiger's book. And obviously, a lot of people consider the third man to be a guardian angel. But many people who experience the third man don't believe it to be a religious experience at all and think that it's some sort of psychological or physiological mechanism. Mm. One theory is that the combination of physical exertion and monotony causes this phenomenon. So thinking that it's an attempt by our brain to provide a sufficient level of stimulation in monotonous environments. Interesting. So let me explain the monotony thing. So there's what they call extreme and unusual environments, EUEs. So for example, things like deep ocean or space travel, the Arctic, extreme mountain climbing, disaster scenarios like a hurricane or terrorist attack or other traumatic environments or events. And one of the frequent characteristics of EUEs is monotony. So imagine like in a space shuttle for weeks or months or however long, you're seeing the same exact thing every single day, crossing the Arctic. It's like all white, snow, ice. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> So yeah, very monotonous. And our brain depends on sensory stimulation. So psychologist Woodburn Heron coined the phrase, the pathology of boredom, and in that phrase, kind of pointed out the example of long-distance truckers sometimes reporting bizarre hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Kind of like if your brain is just doing nothing for too long, you can see some crazy shit. So that's one theory. But usually just being bored isn't enough to like experience their man. Say, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I've yeah. been really bored like for prolonged <laughs> periods of time. Yeah. That's not all it takes. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd all be like having like <laughs> this third person helping us get through like history class yeah. in high school. Yeah. <laughs> or like me at work staring at Excel sheets. Yeah. <laughs> so then comes the principle of multiple triggers. So basically stressors on top of this physical exertion and monotony. Gotcha. So some of it could be biological, like cold stress, low blood glucose, fatigue. Apparently, cold stress-induced hallucinations can occur once the core body temperature drops, but before hypothermia officially hits. Gotcha. And it can cause neurochemical changes, and that hallucinations might be a form of self-hypnosis to deal with extreme discomfort. Which, like, mm. thank you, brain. For real. Protective, am I right? Sometimes. Other times, destructive. Other times, it is not yeah. looking out. <laughs> Spiraling. Yeah. <laughs> Also, the stress of loss. So in several instances, this third man appears after being separated from companions. Also, I'm going to start calling it a third person because, listen, third man is so, like, gender specific. Obviously, it doesn't need to be a third Respect. man. Respect. Cool. Although, if I say third man, it's because I accidentally have that in all of my notes. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't intend on saying third man the entire time. Anyway, 
So in several instances, the third person appeared after being separated from companions. So sometimes due to injury or death. So like that climber, his friend had just died. Absolutely. But in these cases, this loss has the effect of serious trauma. Some research has shown that it's possible that adults are responding to stress in the same way children do. And that children under stress are more likely to have imaginary friends. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. And so some people think that like... It's like adults having like imaginary friends in times of stress, which is so cute. I love it. And then there's also research showing adults experiencing a presence after loss. And in general, I mean, science has shown it's not that uncommon to like feel a presence of the dead. A lot of people have experiences of feeling a presence of their passed away grandfather or grandmother or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to share this little bit because I one part's really funny. So There are several studies that have found that about half of widowers and widows report sensing the presence of their deceased partner, anywhere from as small as a sensation of being watched to like a full-on hallucination that they're still there, which is really sweet. I'm like, that's kind of nice to know that like a lot of people experience that. It gives me some comfort personally. Although I'll probably just be scared shitless. Yeah. If I had the feeling of someone was watching me, game over. I would need it to be a full hallucination. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Don't don't sprinkle it in. It yeah. cannot be up to interpretation. If it's no. up to interpretation, I will it's assume it's a ghost it's that wants to kill me. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Exactly. 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 But in one case, a widow said that after her husband died and was buried, he, quote, had returned to live with her within a few days of his death. For fear of upsetting him, she didn't question this turn of events and carried on without comment. Amazing. (laughs) A few few months later, her husband had mysteriously disappeared and she was distraught and she suspected that he might have found another woman. Oh, my God. So I just thought it was really funny. From the grave, he's still a cheater. (laughs) Awful. I just love that she didn't want to upset him. So she was just like, okay, well, I'm not going to question it. Whatever. (laughs) And then also a study at a hospital in Sweden found that the people who were experiencing more emotional stress during their grief were more likely to experience these hallucinations. So that kind of supports the theory of the stress of loss being more inclined to produce a hallucination of someone. And then just various other stress. There was one study where they said that Peter Sudfeld and Jane Moselin, they agreed that monotony alone doesn't produce physiological symptoms of stress. That stress is produced when boredom or monotony are combined with a need to maintain a high level of alertness. Interesting. So, yeah. So kind of like the the long-distance trucker example. Very bored, but they need to maintain alerts. Uh, Their brain is like, let's hallucinate (laughs) some shit. This next one is fascinating to me. I'm so excited. So there's a theory called the bicameral mind. Have you heard of it? Never. Okay. So psychologist Julian Jaynes, who taught at Princeton – He had this theory that human consciousness is a late development in human evolution. He thinks that until about 3,000 years ago, the human brain was divided into a right brain, God side, and a left brain, man side, where the God side was an authority figure or omnipotent being giving advice, warnings, and commands. And people experienced these as real events taking place. But James argues that they were visual and auditory hallucinations, where the man side listened and obeyed advice from the God side. So essentially, his theory was that these early humans, the part of our brains, like, let's say we're in a situation, your brakes stop working on the road, and the side of your brain that's, like, thinking clearly, if it does, is like, okay, pull the emergency brake, slow down, get off to the side of the road where you can, where it's safe, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can, like, call for help. His theory is that those type of, like, you need to do this, this, and this were experienced as outside voices telling them what to do rather than from their own brain. So he's saying that like those parts of the brain that we now just like think to ourselves when we're trying to be like, okay, we need to do this. Those were people having visual and auditory hallucinations of like God telling them what to do. So he says that all early civilizations we know of seem to have been ruled by such hallucinations or gods. He pointed to Homer's Iliad as an example of this saying that there's no evidence of true consciousness in that book, epic, whatever. So no evidence of true consciousness, of thinking, feeling, or being aware in the original text. Quote, people are not sitting down and making decisions. No one is. No one is introspecting. It is a very different kind of world. Instead, whenever a decision has to be made, a voice comes in telling people what to do, such as when Apollo recommends that Hector avoid battling Achilles. These voices are always and immediately obeyed. These voices are called gods. To me, this is the origin of gods. I regard them as auditory hallucinations. Interesting. So 
Yeah. For me, I think Origin of Gods kind of goes back to what I talked about last week of like, we didn't have the knowledge to be able to understand these things. Therefore, we try to rationalize it the best that we can. That's an interesting take on it. For sure. And I'm definitely not saying that this is like, no, but a lot of people are like, this is crazy. I think I'm leaning more towards that side, but also like, it's fascinating. It's such a fascinating theory. It's just so interesting. But so he goes on to say that these hallucinations were easily triggered in pre-conscious humans, even by the slight stress of making a decision in a novel circumstance. And the intervention of this personal God was required for, quote, anything that could not be dealt with on the basis of habit. So, like, he truly thought we were just, like, out here, like, dumb as a rock. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Which I think is why it's controversial. (laughs) A little bit. He thinks that several factors led to the emergence of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind in humans, including literacy. He says that relaying the commands of the gods weakened the power of the auditory hallucinations. People started to perceive the processes of both hemispheres as their own and not as coming from some external source. And like applying it to the third person syndrome, that for modern humans, the stress threshold for triggering a bicameral hallucination is much higher. Gotcha. So like a near-death experience, for example, rather than trying to figure out how to save their crops or whatever. So interesting theory, kind of out there. I find it so interesting, though. Yeah. So Peter Sudfeld, a psychologist, he thought that the third man syndrome was an example of bicamerality. So that in situations of high stress, the left hemisphere becomes less dominant. And the right hemisphere takes a greater role than normal, which might be responsible for this perception of another person. And he pointed out that it fits in the category of coping mechanisms, calling it an adaptive response, a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. So then we get into some neurological explanations. So one neurologist, MacDonald Critchley, he mainly researched headaches, dyslexia, and other neurological things. But he also did fun research. I thought that you and I would appreciate this. Please, I'm always into it. For example, medical aspects of boxing or a person's attitude towards their own nose. Oh, my God. Amazing. And the supposed telepathic properties of ayahuasca. <laughs> <laughs> so this man's over here just do whatever he wants. The important love questions. Him. I love the it. The dream. Yes. The dream. And he was the first scientist to seriously study this phenomenon among the normal population. And just for – in case we have anyone listening who – I don't know if it's like known – in the research world, normal population refers to, like, a non-clinical population. Mm. And particularly in psychology, like, abnormal psychology, it sounds really fucking awful. Yeah. <laughs> but abnormal psychology is just referring to clinical populations, like, disorders and conditions of the brain. And so so if I say normal population, I'm just talking about a non-clinical, healthy population. I don't know if that's well known, but I thought that I'd say it just in case. I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. So this neurologist, McDonald Critchley, he noted that there were similar experiences in clinical populations, such as those with epilepsy, schizophrenia, or brain injuries, but that in those instances, it's more common for the presence to be either neutral or more sinister, as opposed to in the general population, the normal population of these cases, the presence always seems to be comforting and even like beneficial. So he viewed that it was almost opposite to common hallucinations in that regard and that how they showed up, but also because the third person seems to appear when the person has their senses intact and has an absence of delirium rather than like an epilepsy or schizophrenia. Hallucinations might happen because they're having an episode. So magnetic stimulations to the brain. This one guy, Michael Persinger, he's a psychologist in Ontario. He created what is termed the God Helmet. <laughs> and so that's like what people started calling it. So it's a device that supposedly induces religious experience by stimulating the brain with low doses of complex, low-intensity magnetic fields, oh less gosh. intense even than those that a hairdryer generates. And there is growing evidence to suggest that the right side of the brain might be more sensitive to changes in geomagnetic activity. And he theorized that those changes in geomagnetic activity – cause micro seizures that then produce altered states. Interesting. He said, quote, if all experiences are generated by brain activity, then experiences of God and spirits should also be produced by the appropriate cerebral stimulation. I was <laughs> Which I just s- love how like science that is. Absolutely. And when you started talking about the the God helmet, I was going to say if there's a way to induce it, that would be fascinating. Was he able to replicate these findings in multiple people? 
So in 15 years of experiments, he has found that about 80% of participants reported experiencing a sensed presence. Interesting. He said that it was pretty rare for them to be like religious experiences, but pretty reliably they were able to like click a part of someone's brain and they would feel that someone was there. So I have so many questions. One, the IRB must have had a field day with this. Like <laughs> the uh, IRB's institutional review board for people like that's who you have to go through to ensure that your study is safe and ethical and not whatever. So that's my first question. Like, did he have IRB approval or is he just over here with God helmet being like, hey, random person off the street, come on over. I'm pretty sure it was like a real <laughs> experiment because it, it is a very low dose of magnetic stimulation. Like it's not super intense. Oh so I'm sure that he got approval, but I don't know when the study was done. So it could have been back when my IRB was like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is so fascinating though. Mm-hmm. Often with studies, you need to ensure that people have like the proper aftercare. So if you're going to do something where you're like stimulating fear or whatever, having like a therapist nearby. Debriefing. Yes, absolutely. So I'm wondering like, what if he stimulated some hallucination and someone is literally seeing the devil in front of them and he's like, all right, well, thank you so much for your time today. Goodbye. Yeah. I hope you have fun <laughs> with him. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Um, he did note that some people are more susceptible to the phenomenon. Oh, and- I am so sorry to cut you off, but that's what priming, like I'm so curious as to if these individuals were primed for the study. So I think those were most of the critiques that he gotcha. got. And there were some like, more sciencey scientists yeah. who like there was one atheist who came and was like let me try the god helmet yeah. and he tried it and he's like i didn't experience it yeah, 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 yeah. and this is when he was like okay well some people are more susceptible to the phenomenon gotcha. he says that some people have temporal lobes that are more responsive to naturally occurring electromagnetic interesting and apparently he can like do a interesting, interesting mister yeah if i walk into a room <laughs> yeah. and he's like here's the god helmet of course my dumb ass is gonna be like yeah dude i'm seeing everything in front of me you know I will say, though, he didn't call it the God Helmet. Oh, it, it was, was like termed that, that after the gotcha, experiments. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So, Good like, name. to be fair, I don't think it was that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, sit down. <laughs> sit down. You're going to hallucinate with the God Helmet. Good luck. But I imagine that there was a sense of, like, here, put this on. And, like, do you feel yeah. anything? Do you happen you know, like, to see someone or feel a presence behind you? Do you feel like someone's yeah. watching you right now? Because it's me. I'm right. Yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> And then there have been some research of geomagnetic activity to brain responses. So there's a statistically significant correlation between the solar wind, which I googled because I, I didn't was know about what it to was. say, yeah. The solar wind is a continual stream of protons and electrons from the sun's outermost atmosphere. Okay. That came directly from Thank Google. Thank you, Google. I don't know what's doesn't matter. <laughs> So there's a significant correlation between the solar wind and historical reports of hallucinations, which both peak in the months of March and October. I know. All this electricity running around the sun. We're going to be partying in March and October. Yep. (laughs) And then also one psychologist suggested that two environmental factors seem to trigger this sensed presence. She was doing research at the Esperanza base in Antarctica. She said that the incidents always occurred at the generator of the station, which creates powerful electrical mm. fields. And Esperanza base is located near a very strong local magnetic anomaly that causes ships and aircraft compasses to Interesting. Fit. Again, just a theory thrown out there. Um, <laughs> more neuroscience. Some research suggests that the junction where the temporal and parietal lobes meet is like the key to creating the sense presence. Mm. This is really interesting. I think you're going to have In Switzerland, researchers were treating an epilepsy patient by probing her brain with electrodes to see if her symptoms could be reduced by surgery. Uh So they were just, like, prepping her. This is, like, a total accident. Oh, my gosh. I love it. When stimulating the left temporoparietal junction about 2.5 centimeters above and behind the ear, she had experienced the strange sensation that somebody is nearby when no one is actually present. When the researchers turned off the current, she said that the presence had gone away. The electrical stimulation was repeated and again produced a feeling of a presence in the patient's extra oh space. I could have gone on a lot more about that thing because they kept testing different things out. This poor and patient. This She's like, dude, like- I just came in here for like one treatment. <laughs> She's like, I'm just prepping for yeah. surgery and now I'm, I'm like, you're testing. Fuck. <laughs> but they did apparently she frequently felt this thing like right behind her. A lot of people report feeling this presence like matching their movements. Oh. So, like, in all these studies where they're, like, testing it out with brain stimulation, 
like in that controlled environment, a lot of times people are like, oh, it feels like somebody is doing the same movements as me, but they're behind me or right next to me. It's really weird, which I'll get into that very soon. But this area where the temporal and parietal lobes of the brain are joined is involved in our awareness of our physical self and helps us to distinguish between ourselves and someone else. And it's also been previously reported that lesions in this area can produce a sense of an unseen presence. Mm. So Donald O. Hebb, a Canadian psychologist, argued that the phantom limb is evidence that our own body perception is just a hallucination that just usually happens to agree with reality. And so he kind of like started the theory of like this sensed presence is just like a fuck up in our own body perception. Interesting. Swiss neuroscientist Peter Brugger, in a study of 31 subjects with brain injury or brain disorders such as like a tumor, migraine, schizophrenia, etc., they traced the sensed presence to the left brain. He suggested that this sensed presence experience, this third person syndrome, is a full body equivalent to a phantom limb. So a phantom double or doppelganger, where the brain externalizes its own body awareness and then detects a false sense of another being nearby. Hmm. And in scenarios where individuals are caring for the third man, so sharing food with them or cooking for them, his theory is that people are actually caring for themselves. And in a similar way, when the third man seems to be actively assisting someone in need, it's actually, in fact, a case of someone looking after their own immediate needs. Wow. Which I think is a really nice way to I look at too. it. I do too. It's very cute. But I will say, out of all the theories thus far, I think that one is the most probable. Yes. And I think that this kind of came after finding so many reports of people saying that, like, it feels like it's repeating their movements. Gotcha. And in pretty much any of these reports of mountain climbers or hikers or whatever – They usually say that this third person is like by them and just walking with them and just doing the same thing. So it it does kind of lend itself to this theory of us externalizing our own self-awareness. And in those moments of like extreme distraught, your brain could just be dissociating as a self-defense mechanism to be like, hey, I'm going to try and like take the role here. Like I'm going to do all the things, but like you're not going to. Interesting. 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 (laughs) It made me really think about, um, what is it called when you leave your body? Proud of body experience? Well, yes. No, um, astral projection. Oh, I only know about that from the TV show Charmed. That was like one of my favorite shows as a kid. Charmed Uh, is so funny. I should have known I was gay from the (laughs) get go. Are you kidding me? I'm watching three witches just beep bop around. Uh, I love them. Dude, Charmed is one of my favorites. I love it so much. So good. Also, This is kind of something that we could all guess probably, but differences in human personality can also explain why some people experience this phenomenon and others don't. Absolutely. So openness, which is one of the big five personality traits, and I'm sure you know about this, Tyler, but for our listeners who are not- I think it's OCEAN, right? Yes. OCEAN is the acronym. So the big five, it's like five general traits of personality, and I- As long as things are still the same as they were in, like, 2016, 2015, this is, like, the one that psychologists consider the most legitimate way of measuring personality. Gotcha. I thought there were just all of these different theories on it. There are a lot of different theories. This is the most, like... I could be talking out of my ass. It doesn't matter. Here's what I do know for sure. Psychologists like the Big Five theory better than Myers-Briggs. And the reason why is because Myers-Briggs puts you in a category. So if you're like 51% extroverted, they're like, bam, extroverted category. Whereas the Big Five has a lot of similar concepts of traits, but they measure you on a scale. And so psychologists like it better for measuring personality. Gotcha, gotcha. But as for other types of personality theories – I don't know. Other and, my, but of those two, Big Five is perfect. Gotcha. I will say one thing that I do remember learning is that most, if not all, personality tests are bogus, unfortunately. It can be useful in just like, oh, like this is something that I like. I didn't have the words to describe about myself, but through answering these questions, I'm able to whatever. Right. But yeah. People are going to answer in the way that they want to think about themselves. A hundred percent. Yeah. So there are many flaws in the entire system. Anyhow. Anyway, so... The big five, or ocean, is openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So openness is being imaginative, willingness to explore or consider or tolerate unfamiliar experiences, ideas, and feelings. And people with this characteristic typically are full of ideas, quick to understand things, have unconventional values, and a need for variety. 
So as you may guess, people who are more open to uh, new experiences, such as climbing Mount Everest, are probably more likely to experience the third man syndrome. And also, people with a higher degree of openness are probably more likely to be open to the idea that they could experience a kind of supernatural Kind of like people wanting to see their loved ones. They're probably more prone to experiencing that because they so desperately want that, which like I totally understand. Exactly. Yeah. And similar to that, they also think that a state of heightened awareness called absorption and individual's ability to become involved or immersed in events can contribute to Mm. this. Research has shown that this trait of absorption has been found to be an indicator of whether or not someone can be hypnotized. Oh, interesting. So like, that makes sense to me that if you're more likely to be able to be hypnotized, the more likely you are to be able to like see. I've always wanted to try to be hypnotized, but I know my dumbass is just going to be laying there being like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, okay. And then just leave (laughs) and it's going to be a waste of an hour of money. Also... People think that an individual's ego strength is a critical factor. So some people are better able to set aside the reality of their situation and focus on their survival. The third person syndrome is more common for people who believe that they will ultimately survive or have a, quote, sheer determination to endure, Mm. which I agree with. Like Tyler and I said, we would be like... I would be spiraling. I have a paper cut. It's game over. (laughs) But of course, we'll never know if we are truly fighters unless we're in that experience. Fair. Yeah, please. I would very much appreciate not being in that, or nor anyone. That is why I am not a risk taker. Yeah, my idea of risk is filming a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, literally, Tyler and I both are like, oh my God, we're going to be perceived. No, literally. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> I'm almost done. I'm almost done. So there are some cases of a shared experience of the third man, like in the first example I shared, the Shackleton one. Mm-hmm. So one theory to this is maybe it's like the shared psychosis concept, Mm. but also it could just be that most people are resilient during disaster scenarios and they each individually experience the third man. I think it's personally, this is my contribution to this uh, research. Amazing. I didn't specifically read this in the book. This is my, this is my original (laughs) thought. This is pure fact. Everything (laughs) you're about to hear right now is pure 100% fact. (laughs) My dad, he one time said to my brother, he's like, hmm. But my opinion is fact. <laughs> King, and my brother's like, no, King. no, 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 no. That is such a phenomenal line. That's amazing. <laughs> anyway, you're welcome, Dad. My dad was upset we didn't talk about him the first episode. So here you go. We love you, Dad. We love you, Dad. Uh, okay, anyway. <laughs> I think that probably the personality traits we talked about, probably the people willing to go exploring. So – This whole, like, most people are resilient during disaster scenarios or, like, survival scenarios. Perhaps the people willing to put themselves in that situation are more likely to have the personality traits that increase the likelihood of the third man and to be more resilient. 100%. The people who are not resilient are not going out, like, trying to die. So Yeah, a little bit of population bias there. Yes, exactly. Just just a sprinkle. Um, But experts do say that the typical reaction to disaster is not defeatist, but a determined struggle to survive, even in the face of the most overwhelming adversity. And that we, like, pay a lot of attention to the trauma and grief that people endure, which is very valuable, but that we tend to kind of gloss over humans' resilience. So I thought that was kind of nice. Yeah. John Geiger ended his book with this. Uh, It was close to the end of the book. That it was a nice little sentence. He said, In our time of deepest solitude and need, our brain or mind finds a way to reassure us that we are not alone and that fellow humanity feeling is what ultimately makes the difference between life and death. Absolutely beautiful. And then to close out my section, I decided I would share some quotes from people who have experienced the third person phenomenon. So John Geiger said that one explorer confided to him that he had wondered at times whether there was just one third man, a single entity, who has through time intervened to help those most in need. Have you ever found, he asked, that this being has been in two places at one time? John Geiger said, I had to answer that I have not. And he nodded knowingly. So, (laughs) interesting. He said, my opinion is fact. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, That one didn't come with a name. These other ones have names connected with them. I don't know their stories, but they're all people who've experienced this. Reinhold Messner said, the body is inventing ways to let the person survive. Peter Hillary, it didn't surprise me or frighten me. I didn't think, where did you come from? Because I believe it's a projection of what was happening inside my mind. I think it was probably all in my mind. Hmm. Greg Child, it was not a fearful sensation, not a sense one might expect to have if confronting something supernatural. I felt its origins are within the self, not without. And then Paul Firth, 
he thinks that even if we accept prevailing neurological explanations for the third man, that there's still a mystery. A biological explanation does not preclude a benign metaphysical origin. An explanation of how does not answer the question of why. Whatever the physiological details of these experiences, who can say why these helpful ghosts wander in the penumbral world of the edges of our perception? Damn. He was pulling out all the stops. Every every word that he learned in English dictionary. <laughs> anyway, but I thought that it was that was a nice little quote to end it on. I love it. But basically, very interesting phenomenon. I think it's very cool that our brains are like, well, you clearly need a friend to get through this. Beautiful. I do think it's very sweet that like not being alone is apparently very important to survival sometimes. So humans are basically just cute creatures that are friends. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so that's the third person phenomenon. I love it. I think you did a wonderful job. Thank truly. You, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Now right. I hear that Tyler is going to tell me about cicadas. I have something really important to talk about. These nasty little guys. They're not nasty. Yes, they are they nasty. Are. I actually have never experienced it, so I'm very ignorant. And it, I'm sure if it was up in my personal space, I would say, hey, uh, get away from me. Listen, we had a cicada outburst, not this past summer, but the summer before that over here in Maryland. Oh my gosh, really? I'll share my stories. Oh my God, I can't I'll, wait. I'll let you get started on yeah. your topic. But I should have come dressed up as a cicada. <laughs> That would have been fantastic. <laughs> no, literally, I have like such a disgust with bugs that are like crunchy, like beetle type bugs. I wonder what it is bug specifically. Because I too am in that that demographic. And basically most people I know are also bug averse. So I wonder what it is. I love ladybugs though, I will say. Ladybugs Butterflies I think are beautiful. If they're cute, I guess it's acceptable. I mean, all bugs kind of gross me out. But for whatever reason, beetles like horrify me. I just like, although except for ladybugs, maybe, but like the hard shell and everything. I actually looked it up once because I was like, do I have a phobia now? The year we had cicadas recently, I was like, okay, I have a full of phobia. I cannot exist. (laughs) (laughs) No, truly, it like ruined me. I'll be moving to the Um, South Pole. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. And so I was Googling (laughs) about it. From what I recall, the theory is humans are so disgusted by bugs because they're so different from us that, like, Mm, the human brain... We can't, like, empathize or understand or anything of the sort. That's really fascinating. Dude, my biggest no-no cockroaches. I've been traumatized by many a cockroach. I once woke up and there was one crawling over my face. (gasps) Oh, my God. My brother and I... My brother had an experience one night and then the following night... Because, like, there was, like, a really bad infestation, whatever. Not in our house, but, like, near our house. And they, like, seeped in because they can fit into the size of anything. Awful, 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 awful. But one crawled on him one night and then the next night one crawled on my face. And then we proceeded to sleep in the living room as if, like, cockroaches no boundaries and they would not fit into the living room. It was awful, 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 awful. I also hate cockroaches. I didn't really experience them until I went down to the South for college. And actually, a guy I dated down in Florida, the first time that I went over to his house, he he didn't, like, have a bunch of cockroaches willy-nilly all the time. He was fine. It was just, like, at the time he had a cockroach infestation. And so, like, when we got there, like, I ended up seeing a couple. And he... He literally turned to me and he went, um, is there any way that you're willing to take care of this? And I went. Get out right now. Get out. I was like, I understand the sentiment because like, I also do not want to touch those things, but like, absolutely not. I'm like, I'm almost ready to go. I'm ready to break up with you and delete your number out of my phone. Get away from me. How dare you? I was like, uh-uh, here's the thing. If a relationship is going to work, you are going to have to deal with bugs like that. Like, I simply <laughs> cannot. I cannot. I need three weeks where I don't see you to recover. <laughs> Tell me about cicadas. Okay, cicadas. So, <laughs> the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's actually a present-day topic, which I will get to. There are cicada swarms that occur on a periodical basis, which I'll get to in a little bit. But, there's a little bit of background. I think I hinted to it earlier. I grew up in a place with no seasons and very little environmental change. I grew up in Vegas and it was either hot or cold. So because I had so little environmental change, I find it fascinating when people experience such massive changes in their environments. Like I absolutely love the rain. I want to experience like a true thunderstorm. I got a little bit of it when I was visiting North Carolina, but that's why I'm interested in moving to the East Coast. And not that I ever want to experience this, but the fact that 
trillions of bugs emerge from the earth and then just just baffling to me oh god it's horrible and also just saying you should come to the east coast literally two weeks ago it was like 15 degrees and then a week later it was up to 70 one day so See, that's wonderful that's what you get over here and my ignorant ass is like oh i can sustain in the cold and i'll be fine and then people that have lived in the cold are like uh have you ever driven in snow and ice and like have you ever had to shovel your driveway out and i'm like you know i haven't and that all sounds awful anyhow moving along for those of us that do not know what a cicada is me I figured I, I would give a little that. bit of a background. <laughs> so, cicada's a bug. Crazy, crazy idea. Who would have thought? They're in the same suborder as leafhoppers and froghoppers, which I knew what a leafhopper was, but I didn't know what a froghopper was. And I didn't look it up, nor will I. So, do with that what you will. In terms of a cicada's life cycle, they lay eggs. And then a cicada nymph emerges from said eggs and then these nymphs have little legs that are designed for digging. Why slash how this happens, I don't know. And that's for a deep dive podcast, nor do I care. But <laughs> I did not know that when cicadas emerge, that they've been living underground this entire time, um, which I will get into later. While I do not want to admit it, cicadas are actually somewhat important for the environment. Boo, boo. Boo, disgusting. But wait, go. I have a, before we move on from the nymphs. So, when do they dig into the ground? I'll get into that. Okay. Do they dig into the ground and then lay their eggs? No. So, okay. the eggs, I'll get into it. Okay, you'll get into okay. it. Okay. So, in terms of them being important, they're a big food source for birds and other predators. They aerate lawns and help water filtration. They add yada, nutrients yada, yada, to yada. the ground as they decompose. Whatever, dude. They're bugs. <laughs> they're disgusting. Quick side note that I found that was really interesting and makes me hate them even more. They are the noisiest slash loudest bug in the world. They are some noisy little shits. The yeah. African cicada is the loudest of the cicadas at 106.7 decibels. Where two North American species of cicadas come in close at 106 decibels. Also, that means nothing to me. I am no audiologist, so I needed a reference. A leaf blower can reach up to 90 decibels. So this is louder than a leaf blower. A motorcycle revving its engine is 110 decibels. So it's like you're constantly surrounded by that. And I am so sorry for people that have to experience that. It's a constant just, like, hum of them. It's super awful, annoying. Awful. I think I would go clinically insane if I had to be around that. Aren't they only around for a couple of weeks, though? Only. <laughs> I think it yeah. may have – it felt longer than a couple of weeks. It felt like a year and a half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was definitely, like, relatively short period of time. But you okay. would be okay with your noise-canceling headphones. Maybe. And, I mean, you kind of get used to it because it just ends That's up That's what being... people were reporting. You just – that's like white noise at that point that you're accustomed to. It's kind of like your air conditioner. Like you just kind of get used to the noise, you know? But that is – I didn't realize that the decibels were that loud. That's kind of right? crazy. Isn't that wild? That blew my mind. Oh, all these things are from different sources. One from the British Wikipedia, aka Britannica. <laughs> Another one from a Purdue study – and then I looked up one NCBI article called The Evolution of Periodicity in Periodical Cicadas, which all of those words mean nothing right now, but I'll explain what they mean in okay. a little bit. Cool. So back to the cicada swarm. The specific cicada I'm interested in is the periodic cicada. And these are the ones that emerge either every 13 or 17 years. So there are some cicadas where they have their life cycle, they dig into the ground, they come back out, whatever. But I want the 13 or 17 years because this is when literally trillions of cicadas emerge from the ground. There's a description later on. I think it's like they boil out of the ground or something of the sort that made me want to vomit. Before doing a medium dive on these cicadas, I had heard of these swarms. And all I knew slash thought was that they dug underground, they laid some eggs, and then they emerged every couple of years but they're actually living under the ground the entire time. Like I mentioned to you, the little nymphs, they dig into the ground and for 13 or 17 years, specifically these periodic cicadas are eating tree sap and like root nutrients. So they are actively living for 13 to 17 years underground. Like they're which not hibernating? They're not hibernating. They are active the entire time. That seems fake. 
<laughs> and I know, but there's so many theories that I'll get into as to how slash why this is. Some attribute okay. it to like, there needs to be a temperature shift or some attribute it to they need to grow or reach a certain size and then they'll emerge. Also, weird note, and I think I talk about it a little bit later on, but really interesting that it's 13 and 17, both prime numbers. There's some some wizardry going on there. <laughs> Conspiracy theory. <laughs> Conspiracy theory. The cicadas are taking over. Uh, oh, my next line. Contrary to popular misconception, periodical cicadas don't spend their entire years underground in hibernation. Rather, they are conscious and active in their wingless nymph forms, excavating tunnels and feeding on the sap from tree roots. And then I wrote, which blew my mind. That was copy and pasted. So if you couldn't tell. <laughs> I did not know that about them. I Isn't really that crazy? thought that they hibernated. Yeah, it really uh, threw me for a loop. Random side note, um, this is my time to say, do not move to the state of Illinois before July unless you love some bugs. This year, which is the first time since 1998, the 13- and 17-year cicadas are both going to emerge in May. Good luck. Horrifying. Good luck to my Illinoisan friends. Don't have any, but good luck to them. To put this into scientific terms, that is a metric fuck ton of cicadas. (laughs) That was me. (laughs) That was not from the Purdue article. Are you sure? (laughs) I don't know. That's very scientific. Um, Researchers, and by researchers, I mean I looked at one article from Purdue University, but there were actually quite a few articles that concur with this amount. Researchers estimate that when irises bloom, which iris is a type of flower, and when said flower blooms is typically when cicadas emerge, one could expect 1.5 million cicadas per acre to begin, quote, boiling out of the ground. That wording is awful and vile, and the fact that they use it just really ruined my day when I looked it up, slash today. I wonder if they come out at night. Right. I haven't ever seen them, like, emerge. They're just there. You know what I mean? A big theory which I'll get into later, is they do this to avoid predation. So like they have these erratic, but every 13 or 17 year emergences so that they can't be like a a natural prey for a bunch of, whatever, I'll get into it later. Just for some context, 1.5 million cicadas per acre. The state of Delaware is roughly 1.5 million acres in size. So if we accept that estimate, then the total combined area of a periodical cicada emergence is roughly the size of Delaware. More than a trillion cicadas will be involved. For 2024, since cicadas will emerge from Maryland to Oklahoma and Illinois to Alabama... A side note, my knowledge of geography is absolutely abysmal, so I have no idea how many states this encompasses, and I wasn't going to look it up, nor was I going to count, but clearly trillions of adult cicadas will be present. It seems like it's going to be the worst in Indiana, though. So good luck. I will say I saw, I think it was probably like a Google News alert or something, like, you know, your phone gives you like some news articles every once in a while, you're like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. God, I hate myself. I I don't need to say any of that. Okay. I saw an article talking about um I saw an article talking about this new cicada thing coming up. Sure. And I actively looked into it to see if it was going to hit Maryland again. I actually don't think Maryland's going to be affected or if they are it's going to be very little. So oh, wonderful. For all the Marylanders out there, I don't think we're going to get fucked, but also I don't know. I'd have to look it up again because Tyler's kind of telling me something else. Good luck. So and, you know, my information could 100% be wrong. So, but whatever. Here's the thing. I only looked at one article. And I have a feeling you probably <laughs> did too, something similar. <laughs> I'm going to believe what makes me feel better in my heart, which is that they are not coming back this time. That is the most important. So, my main question in Cicadas is why slash how are they emerging in these random yet precise time points? Yes. And it seems like there are quite a few reasons One of the supposed reasons that's agreed upon by many individuals is to escape predation. So rather than being snacked on little by little, they have a very like shotgun approach to life where if trillions emerge at once, only a couple of them will be eaten in the grand (laughs) scheme of things. And then they have better chances at procreating and making more nasty little buggers. So they really just want to like... They're playing a numbers game. Absolutely. I think every species is playing a numbers game, but these little shitters got it down to a T. I hate them so much, Tyler. I hate them so much. I truly cannot even begin to imagine what it would be like to walk out of my door to just them. Do they ever get in your house? 
They're ha- uh, they have to with how abundant they are, right? I will say that actually a couple summers ago when they came here, it was pretty rare for them to be inside. Oh. There have been a couple instances where like one does get inside and they're kind of hard to get out. Gotcha. Cicadas are kind of like bumbling idiots. The reason that they land on you is because like they think that you're a tree. Like they're kind of dumb. And they aren't like aggressive. They just like – for example, one time one was like right in front of our door and – I called Ethan and I'm like, I can't pass the threshold. There's a security there. <laughs> I will not enter. <laughs> I, I, I needed him to come outside to rescue me. And um, so in trying to like brush the cicada away, if you hit them, they just kind of like, yeah. and like they're fly like a the little penguins bit. of bugs, right? Like they just, yeah, they kind of like, they buzz ball. off like a foot and yeah. then they're like, oh. yeah. And so this cicada flew away, sort of, but like into our home. <laughs> like Ethan was trying to get it out. Yeah. And I will so say, and like- I don't know if I have this later on in my document, but uh, cicadas, I think you had mentioned, they're no harm to us. They can't bite us or whatever. They're just strictly a nuisance. Mm-hmm. So, like I was saying, the shotgun approach, it makes predators have to hunt for other food sources in the interim, like 13, 17 years. So there's no like, or not a lot of like evolutionary adaptation to specifically hunt for cicadas because they are so inaccessible at most times in the year. That's right. I really thought that was fascinating. Like creatures will not develop that their primary food source is absolutely cicada because they're not yeah. around. That's right. Smart. That's what I'm saying. So these nasty little buggers, they kind of got something going on. Me calling them fumbling idiots. I don't know. They, they figured something out. <laughs> With that being said, this hypothesis does have a significant flaw. Okay, what is it? <laughs> um, which is that it can't account for the rarity of their periodicity or like how interspersed they are. So all cicadas face predation pressure, but only a small number of the species are known to be periodical or are known to have these 13 or 17 year intervals. <laughs> so like there are cicadas around all the time. Yeah, but- only some of them are smart. Yeah, only some of them do the hibernation thing. But are they smart? Because they're like, oh, no one's going to eat us. But they don't realize that, like, there are cicadas who are chilling all the time. (laughs) Like, there are predators who know what cicadas are. So, never mind. They are bumbling (laughs) idiots. They're brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) No, I hate them. They suck. They're stupid. Okay, we're going with that. Okay, thank you. So, another hypothesis (laughs) suggests that cicada nymphs, like I mentioned earlier, need to reach a certain size, which they reach either when they're 13 or 17 years old. My issue with this hypothesis as an experienced entomologist or bug researcher (laughs) is what about resource availability? In some areas, there may be more food than in others, but then why do they all emerge at the same time, right? Because if they need to reach a certain size underground, some of them are going to be in areas where trees are super abundant and they're going to be num-num-numbing and grow faster than individuals, individuals, nasty little buggers that are in areas that are not as populated or dense with trees. Also, so what's like, going on what there? bugs are there that live 13 or 17 years? That's what I'm like, saying. I'm saying. You're telling me? That bug is growing the entire time, but it takes that long to get that size? No way. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Also, okay, most species have like a stopping point of growth. Sure. So like are you telling me that cicadas stop growing, emerge, live for like a week, and then die? Like that doesn't make any sense that that's when they would stop growing. they all reach that growth at the same time point? Within the span of weeks out of years? No, 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 incorrect. This has to be witchcraft, black magic. (laughs) (laughs) Question. As the nymphs, do they – I'm assuming they don't have wings at that time. Correct. They are wingless. Maybe it takes a really long time to finesse their wing growth. (laughs) Boo. I refuse to believe it. It doesn't make any sense compared to like all the other bugs. And we are, as you said, experienced uh, entomologists. Entomologists. 100%. I've spent my entire life dedicated to – we are actually bug researchers. <laughs> that was so hard to say aloud. <laughs> okay, uh, a couple last things here, and then I'm done. Because really, there are not a lot of answers. Researchers do not know why. Yeah, there's been tons of research studies, but there's been no one proven thing. Everyone has like these predation theories or growth theories, but no one really knows what's going on with these periodical cicadas. I don't like that. I don't like that we don't know. I don't either. <laughs> How um, do we have <laughs> answers? That's crazy. 
So research now suggests that changes in climate, aka global warming, can disturb these cicada brood emergences. So we're just going to have to wait and see what happens with that. It may not be every 13 years. It may be shorter. It may be longer. Who knows? Let's hope for longer. Please, God. So there are many hypotheses as to why these cicadas emerge in these time-dependent ways, but as for many science-related things, there is no 100% definite answer, and the lack of an answer ruined my day, and I hope it ruins yours too. Mm, thank you for that. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now would you like my first-hand account of what it was like to deal with them? I would love nothing more, please. Okay. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> it just rot in your face right now. <laughs> Basically, you would go outside and they're just everywhere. It's like an effort to not step on them, you know? I've seen videos of them literally coating people's houses. Like, there's no house that you're able to see because they are – it is bug. I will say they were not that bad, at least this past summer or whatever. I think Maryland is one of the states that has less. I think – and again, I am no geography expert, <laughs> um, but I think the Midwest, which mm. – Sounds Whatever. Like I have beef with them calling it Midwest because it's not the Midwest, right? Is it? It is like more. But it's not West. It's more East. If you were to like cut the United States <laughs> oh, in half. for sure. <laughs> right? I would be curious when they got the name Midwest because like if it was before colonizers went over to settle in the West, then it was the West of what we had explored oh, by that time. Oh, I see what you're saying. Gotcha. Interesting. I don't know. I forgot or what I was going Or it could be with. because like more cities were started on the East Coast in the colonization part Makes sense. of America's yeah. time. Like, okay, it's like the middle of the country. It's more Absolutely. in the middle. And it's west of like New York. <laughs> it's all about perspective, right? It was their perspective at the time that that was the way. I'm just like coming I up like with it. shit. <laughs> no, I firmly believe that's true. And no one can convince me otherwise. My opinion is fact. 100%. I'm, that's the new life motto. I'm going to get it tattooed on my forehead. Oh, my dad where I was going with this is the Midwest, I think, gets it the worst. I see, I see. Well, so maybe in Maryland, it's not that bad. I think I've only experienced two in my lifetime. I remember once when I was a kid, there being cicadas around and then like two summers ago. So mm -hmm. granted, like I'm not that old and they only come around 13 or 17 years. So like I don't have that much experience with these Fair, things. Yeah. But at least <laughs> You are no cicada expert. Yeah. <laughs> I also live in a more like urban area rather than like in the country. So it could have been. Gotcha. Yeah, Less. concrete and yeah. who knows, who knows, who knows. So this is only my experience, but it was horrifying enough as is. Yeah. They just start flying around and they don't care that you're there. Like they will land on you. I will say I do appreciate the fact that everybody has such a similar reaction to them that like I see other people also like darting out of the way and yeah. like, trying to avoid them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it is a little bit nice that there's sort of like a shared – um horrific experience going on that like we don't judge each other for like freaking the fuck out when they get near us bond over the misery okay one last fact and then this will be it for my topic okay. cicada technically are not considered a plague of locusts in some areas people call cicadas locusts but cicadas can't eat crops like locusts can they only drink from trees like the roots of trees and sap so they're not considered locusts do they look the same i don't know i know nothing about locusts besides aren't they in the bible something 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 about a plague of locusts. Locusts? Probably. Am I saying that right? Loki? Locusts? Locusts, locusts. I think. Locusts. Dude, do you know what um, I hate? I hate how, like, the plural of octopus is technically octopi. But yes. I feel like you sound like – not you. <laughs> I I always feel like I sound like such a pretentious asshole when I say octopi. That's how I feel about the word data in the research realm because data is technically plural so people will say these data instead of the data which is correct and like i understand it it just doesn't do compute that. In my i just brain. say data yeah yeah the data yeah uh what about it i also never say these data da these data. <laughs> data. <laughs> data. Hey, daddy. data or data right 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 data the thing oh is did i say data no 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 wait but then there's also datum. Oh, see, I didn't know about that. I don't know. Let me Google it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Data versus data versus data. data. <laughs> Babe, <laughs> I don't think it's going to be fruitful. Data versus oh. data. Okay. Datum is singular, meaning one piece of information. Mm. Data mm -hmm. is the plural form of data. See, datum to me sounds like it should be plural. 
Me too. And then, hold on, let me look up the pronunciation thing. Okay. In American English, the pronunciation data is more common where the first syllable rhymes with day. British English, the pronunciation data data is more prevalent. Okay, data. wait. Okay, okay. Go. Data. <laughs> Papa. Papa. <laughs> That's what we're calling it. That is the only acceptable term from now on. These data. Papa. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So here's what we learned. <laughs> Nothing. Data. <laughs> Data and data are the same. Yes. <laughs> I don't think that was the question for me. It was for me. I thought you were telling me something different. <laughs> I was thinking of data versus data. Um, but it turns out that data Ooh. and data are the same. The more you know. I thought it was just stupid. Well, and it turns out that I am stupid, (laughs) just in a different way. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. I'm dead. I think that's a good point to end this podcast. (laughs) Well, I I I think think I interrupted you. What were you talking about? No. You have one last fact. Oh, no, it's about locusts. I think we're good. Yeah, okay, okay. (sighs) Okay. Um, Well, uh, this has been wonderful. I hope you guys all enjoyed it. Okay. Okay. We go? We go. This was good. Thank you for this. This has been wonderful. All right, guys. (laughs) We'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you guys for listening. And you can follow us on Instagram at Medium Dives Pod. If you like the show, send it to your friends. Thanks. Bye.